welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome. We're now in series nine. This is the beginning of series nine, episode one. And we're in Luke's gospel. We're in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 35. And this episode is headed the narrow door and the urgent choice. If you've been following in series eight, you'll know that using material from John's gospel and Luke's gospel, we've put together a picture of that phase of Jesus's life where he's left Galilee after three years of successful ministry there, and he's heading southward with very clear determination to head for Jerusalem and to bring his ministry to an end in the city of Jerusalem. He predicts his death and his resurrection a number of times to his disciples. He gets on the move. He goes away from his base in Capernaum, and we capture the story as he's traveling through central and southern Israel, Samaria, and Judea. And John describes in episodes we looked at in series eight a couple of times when Jesus made a private visit to Jerusalem in connection with some religious festivals. But uh, in general, uh, he's in Judea and he's traveling around a lot and meeting lots of new people. Crowds come uh, wherever he goes. Many interesting incidents are happening. Huge crowds, more healings. Uh, he sends out 72, as described in Luke chapter 10, 36 teams of people traveling all over the central and southern parts of the country to get his message out, to make an impact and to prepare the way for what Jesus anticipates being the climax of his ministry when he arrives in Jerusalem in public and uh, challenges the religious authorities. Meanwhile, we've noticed uh, in the material, both in John and Luke's material in uh, series eight, We've noticed the fact that opposition is rising and it keeps appearing from the religious establishment. We have groups of Pharisees, teachers of the law. We have representatives of the Sanhedrin and the priesthood in the Jerusalem episodes. We have all sorts of people challenging Jesus and Jesus involved in some very dangerous situations when he's in Jerusalem as a private citizen, uh, worshipping and teaching, where he's even threatened with death on the two accounts that John gives us of Jesus visiting at the Feast of Tabernacle, then at the Feast of Dedication, as described in John chapter 7 through to John 10, which we looked at in series 8. That's the general situation uh, that we find ourselves in at the beginning of series 9, when we are moving uh, more specifically towards that final uh, visit to Jerusalem. There's been some very challenging teaching about the gospel, about the need to believe, the need to make decision, the need to use the opportunity that Jesus is providing to the people at the time. And that theme has been particularly evident in Luke's account as he describes various conversations Jesus has and various teachings that he gives at different stages. And it's with all those things in mind that we come to this particular passage, uh, Luke 13 verses 22 through to the end of the chapter um, in verse 35. Let's just look at the opening verse to start with. Luke 13, 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Luke's very specific in pointing out uh, the intention of Jesus in going to Jerusalem. 
It started a little bit earlier in Luke 9.51, which is a previous statement on a similar theme. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And here we have in verse 22 that he's going through the towns and villages teaching as he makes his way to Jerusalem. So the clear intentionality and structure of what Jesus is doing is clear. And he's obviously traveling around to lots of different places. Luke doesn't name very many of these places. Um, We just know that he's sort of covering a lot of ground and visiting a lot of places. And so that's the context of this teaching in the first part of this passage, which is triggered by a question. Now, that's really quite common in Jesus' ministry. People see what he's doing. People notice him passing by. People observe a miracle or, or, or something like that. And they ask a question from the crowd. And that's often the basis upon which Jesus brings specific uh, teaching. And the question here is, verse 23, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? This really is a, a leading question, isn't it? And saved, meaning experiencing spiritual salvation, entering into eternal life, being saved from their sins. We can assume that's the meaning that the questioner has. Are there only going to be a few people or are there going to be lots of people? You see, it was a puzzle to them. There were lots of people in the crowds. There were lots of people who'd been healed by Jesus. There are lots of people who like Jesus. Are they all going to be saved? What's the criteria for being saved? That's basically the underlying question that this a person has. It's a leading question. The context, of course, is that the door of salvation is open for the Jews at that time in a very special way, as I've made clear in earlier episodes. And Luke makes this point in a number of contexts. This is their opportunity. Jesus is coming to their area. Jesus is there in person, in humanity, on their soil, in their towns, in their villages, preaching, healing, teaching. It literally is their golden opportunity. Are many of them going to be saved? But actually, this question is very interesting because it's a very common question. Everyone wants to know the answer to this question. The anxiety about the next life, about our future destiny, our personal identity after death, whether death is the end, whether there is a God, whether there's a way of salvation, whether our religious systems will be good enough for us to receive salvation. All those kind of questions are human questions that appear in every society in one form or another. They're there in your society and they're certainly there in my country, in the UK. And there's a popular hope that we have in many contexts, particularly in more secular cultures, more cosmopolitan cultures, more multicultural cultures, as you find in the West, there's a popular hope that there's going to be a universal salvation based fundamentally on God's love. He's going to somehow find a way to save all of humanity or perhaps much of humanity. Many people deep down hope that this is the case. And there have been in the modern age, particularly in the 20th century, 
within the Christian church, within the Protestant Christian church, there have been theological trends and schools of thinking that have suggested that this is the ultimate reality. That in fact, the primary issue that we need to engage with is God's overwhelming love for humanity shown through Christ. And that this love will triumph in the end. We may resist him for a time, but he'll win us eventually and he'll redeem our lives and he'll save all of humanity. Now, I know many people who believe this, say it. I've heard people say it many times. People are often discussing this issue in the context of some church denominations in my country. This is common and you probably know something similar in your culture to some degree. Well, we're going to put this theory to the test. We have an ideal opportunity to address it because Jesus is answering that very same question which somebody in the crowd has raised. And that person may have been influenced by Jesus's earlier teaching as recorded in Luke 13 verses 1 to 5 when he was asked the question about uh, people who'd been executed in Jerusalem by the Roman authorities, people who'd suffered accidental death because a tower fallen on them, uh, and to say, you know, what's what's their status, what's the situation? And Jesus basically uh, encourages people that they really need to get right with God now in case something happens to them in this fragile life. Anyway, the questioner asks a very vital question, and we have a great opportunity to answer it by... Uh, hearing what Jesus says specifically. Let's read verses 24 to 30. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, Open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there will be those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. There are many components to this sobering and challenging message in answer to that question. Are only a few people going to be saved? So we're going to go through the different things that Jesus says, trying to be clear about the context and the implications of some of the things that he says. And an initial point would be to say that uh, the Jews understood the afterlife, the next life, to be uh, the kingdom of God in fullness. And they often use the analogy or metaphor of a feast 
a meal, a celebration meal, to indicate the status of people in that uh, new life, that next life, when they are with God personally and redeemed. And that's why we have the reference there to the feast and to the kingdom. And Jesus has used this language in other contexts and in other teachings. But let's look very specifically at what he has to say. Verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. First point that really is striking. The way to salvation is narrow. It's not easy. It's not an easy option. This, in fact, is um, exactly what we uh, remember Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7 Verses 13 and 14, as the Sermon on the Mount comes to an end, Jesus makes some summary comments and exhortations to people who are listening. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Well, we have a similar statement here. The narrow door. It's not easy to get into the kingdom of God. It's not easy to be saved. There is a door, but it's narrow. You have to go down a narrow path. What is that narrowness? Well, as far as we can tell from everything that Jesus says, the narrowness is that it focuses around believing in Jesus personally and specifically and believing and trusting in his suffering and his death as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for us, turning away from our sins and having faith in him and believing that as he was raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. This is the narrow message of Christianity that is emerging very clearly in the pages of the gospel and is reinforced very decisively in the pages of the book of Acts in the early church as the apostles begin to preach. And Jesus has made this point in a number of different ways. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14 verse 6. We'll be looking at that statement uh, a little bit later on. There are many ways in which he emphasizes the narrowness. But also in that verse, it says many will try and enter but will not be able to. So many would like to enter into salvation, but... They don't enter because they're not willing to pay the cost. They're not willing to actually put their trust in Jesus, to believe in him, to renounce any other way, to renounce any sense that they're going to achieve through their achievements, uh, uh, get the blessing and favor and forgiveness of God. It's, it's a narrow way. It involves something that we all find difficult, and that is humility, being humble, realizing that on our own, we can't make it, realizing that the way we've lived our lives is in distinct ways wrong, and it needs turning away from. We've lived independently of God. So many would like to enter, but they'd like to enter on their own terms, and God doesn't receive people on their own terms, only on his terms. Verse 25 indicates that the door that into the house, uh, the house of salvation in metaphorical language, is only open for a certain period of time. 
there will come a time when that door closes. Now, what's that a reference to? That could be a specific contextual reference to the door of opportunity for the Jews. They need to receive the salvation while Jesus is there, uh, because then that particular opportunity will be lost. There's certainly that possibility by way of interpretation. But maybe that door uh, refers to the second coming, uh, when Jesus comes again, it'll be too late. There won't be any time to think about things. That uh, closing of the door may also refer to the length of our human lifespan. We have the opportunity when we're alive, but when we've died, uh, we no longer have the opportunity. The door is only open for a certain time. Verses 26 and 27, the people who were excluded from the house said they'd met Jesus. We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. Meeting Jesus and hearing his message does not guarantee salvation. Even now, hearing the message of Jesus that I'm bringing uh, in these videos, and hearing the message of Jesus from preachers in churches or online, that's not enough. It's what we do about it that counts. And a lot of people ate with Jesus had meals with him. They witnessed him coming to their villages and towns like he's doing just at this moment, according to the first verse, verse 22. That's not enough. You can't say, well, Jesus was here. Jesus came by. You can't just say, well, I heard the Christian message one day and I nodded my head. No, it's what you do about it in your heart that counts. And Jesus indicates there's going to be terrible regret for those who don't take the opportunity given them. Verse 28, there'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. A terrible sense of regrets will come for those who had the opportunity to believe, but did not believe. Verse 28 to 30 tells us some of the people who are going to be in God's kingdom. We see the Jewish fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets. Uh, the implication is many ordinary Jews will be with them there, but many Jews will be not there because they didn't take the opportunity to believe. However, people are going to come from east and west and north and south. That's a reference to all the nations of the world. And so Jesus said a paradox is going to emerge in God's kingdom that the first nation to receive the message, the Jews, will significantly miss out because they'll reject the message even though they had the best opportunity. Whereas people in Gentile nations in other parts of the world who had less opportunity will be more responsive and they'll come in large numbers and they'll come into the kingdom so that those who are last will be first and those who are first will be last. And the kingdom will be like a banquet. Now, our next episode is a parable. We're going to look at the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, which follows on directly from this theme. So when we go back and ask ourselves the question, is everyone going to be saved? Is there going to be universal salvation just on the basis of the love of God? We have to say that is not what Jesus says here. There is no possible way we can interpret this language to suggest that the love of God in itself is sufficient to bring universal salvation. You see, God's justice has to be settled. There has to be rectification or resolution of the problem of sin. 
men and women need to open themselves up to be reconciled to God. They have to take responsibility for their side of the bargain. God isn't going to overrule our will. He's waiting for us to willingly submit to him and his truth and be set free from our sins. We have a second and important passage here to conclude. Verses 31 to 35 of Luke 13. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox. I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This question from the Pharisees and this statement uh, is intriguing. Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. So where was Jesus in the first place? And which Herod are we talking about? And what's the significance of this statement? Well, according to our last episode in John's Gospel at the end of chapter 10, we find that Jesus was in a town called Bethany beyond the Jordan, where he was had, had a really good reception after he'd visited Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication very briefly. John describes that very clearly, and I explained that Bethany beyond the Jordan was the place where John the Baptist had operated from. It's referred to very specifically in John chapter 1 and identified by name. So that town and that area was probably where Jesus was at the time when the Pharisees asked this question. That was in a territory called Perea, not in Judea, ruled by the Romans, but in Perea, which was linked to Galilee, although further south than Galilee. It was under the rulership of the same king who ruled in Galilee, the one who Jesus had uh, spoken of earlier and who had imprisoned and executed John the Baptist and his name was Herod Antipas, one of the sons of King Herod the Great. He ruled in that region only, Perea and Galilee. And so the Herod that the Pharisees are referring to here is Herod Antipas, the ruler of the area that Jesus is in at that particular time. They suggest that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. But we have no evidence of that. It seems a really odd statement. And it may be that the Pharisees are trying to frighten Jesus. So he goes over the River Jordan, which then takes him into a different territory, the territory of Judea, where Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, was ruling and where the Pharisees had much more authority and they're more likely to be able to arrest him and execute him. It's probably a trick question as far as we can tell. Jesus' answer was that he must keep going on his ministry and he's not going to take any notice 
of the potential threat from King Herod. He predicts here that he's going to die ultimately in Jerusalem, the place where prophets uh, often died in the Old Testament. And Jesus prophetically anticipates this. And then he concludes uh, this uh, statement here by a mournful statement about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus, not just thinking of his personal safety, far from it. He's thinking of the terrible loss to the city of Jerusalem, that it had been so unwilling to receive him up to this point. And this reference here is to particularly to his previous visits and most particularly to the last two visits as recorded in John chapter 7 to 10, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Festival of Dedication. And on both occasions, he got a very hostile reception. On both occasions, he was threatened with stoning. On both occasions, he was heavily criticised by the religious authorities and his identity challenged. Jesus wanted to gather the people of Jerusalem into his kingdom, but they weren't willing. And so he predicts in the final verse that the city of Jerusalem will suffer for this unwillingness and will ultimately be destroyed, left desolate. And he's referring here to events I've mentioned on a number of occasions that took place uh, just a few uh, decades after Jesus' life, in AD 70, when the Roman armies came to Jerusalem after a, a rebellion amongst the Jews, and they destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. He said, you won't see me again after that until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a reference to a long-term future where the Jews will, as a nation, turn to the Messiah in a more fundamental way and welcome him back for his second coming. That's a whole nother story, which is just alluded to here very briefly and is elaborated by Paul, particularly in Romans chapters 9 to 11, where he explains that a future time is coming when the Jews as a nation will um, overwhelmingly be responding to Jesus Christ. That process has just begun to happen in our generation and will continue. Some final reflections as we close this episode. Whatever the Pharisees and others wanted to do with Jesus, however much they were trying to uh, destroy him, the greatest factor at work in the life of Jesus was God's sovereign power. This is made clear in Acts 2, verses 23 and 24. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the first sermon preached by one of the apostles in the era of the church when the Holy Spirit had come in power, he said, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God's predetermined purpose was that Jesus would die and be raised again 
from the dead. So all the scheming and planning of the religious leaders and all these different factions is only a secondary factor in the story. Jesus knows that. He's trusting God that through the actions of evil men, God's greater purpose will be fulfilled. But my final point is going back very much to the beginning of what we were saying. The question is said, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? The answer is that the gospel door is a narrow door and relatively few people amongst humanity are going to be saved. In every generation, people have to make a choice between following Christ or following their own inclinations or another religious tradition or a secular way of life. And that choice is with us in this generation. 2,000 years later, that choice is there. It's actually a choice for you, the listener and the viewer of this episode. And if you have not yet committed yourself to Jesus Christ, can I encourage you, don't wait any longer. Don't wait until the door of opportunity closes. Take that opportunity right now. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.